Please sit down and uh, as you sit, can I encourage you to take up a Bible? If you don't have your own Bible with you, then a uh, church Bible and turn uh, to the first of those two readings that we had earlier in the service to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, from verse 16 right through to chapter 5 verse 10. It's on page 1160 in the church Bibles, 1160, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 and following and uh, we are uh, concluding a little series Uh, looking at some of these uh, chapters of 2 Corinthians 4 in the last few weeks and 5. So let's pray together now. Our loving Heavenly Father, we've been singing, we have a hope that is certain and steadfast. And uh, we pray that as we look at your word this morning, that we would indeed understand that what is to come in the future is not a vague thing, but it is solid and substantial. And we pray that as we grasp that, we would be liberated to serve you wholeheartedly and unreservedly. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to chapter 5, verse 10 then. Uh, You don't need me to tell you that we live in an instant culture from instant custard to instant credit, from instant coffee to fast food. We want everything and we want it now. Which is why the uh, old credit card slogan from some years ago was so brilliant. Do you remember it? Take the waiting out of wanting. Armed with a little piece of plastic, you and I can have whatever we want today. And it is painless. Well, it is at the time anyway. Of course, when the bill comes in, it's not quite so painless. And that is why rising credit card debt is becoming such a huge problem in our society. And that impatience to have everything now that we experience in society at large has seeped its way into the church as well. Have you noticed it? There are plenty of Christian leaders who want to take the waiting out of wanting churches who want to bring into the present the promises of God that are in fact for the future. Churches that promise the follower of Jesus fit bodies and fat wallets, or both. It is a huge problem in the church today, but it's not a new problem. The church in first century Corinth suffered from exactly that same problem, that same impatience to drag the promises of God that are for the future into the present. Now that becomes clear as you read through the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, There's no need to turn to it. Let me read just one verse for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. So the first letter of Paul to Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 8. Listen to this. Already, he is writing uh, quite sarcastically of course, he writes... Already you have all you want. To a bunch of Christians, already you've got all you want. You've got nothing to wait for, you've got it all now. That was the way they were thinking. Already you have all you want, already you've become rich. You have become kings. And that without us. He goes on to say, how I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings uh, with you, Yes, I, I, I wish we really were in that time when we were in the new creation, when we were all kings. Do you see what they've done? They dragged the promises of the future into the present. 
The Corinthians didn't want to wait. They wanted everything now. They wanted the promises of eternity now. And by the time Paul wrote this second letter to the Corinthians, that desire was beginning to be fulfilled, if I can put it that way. Because a group of competent, strong, impressive people had taken up the leadership of the church. And they were teaching them this very thing. These people believed that there was no place for suffering or weakness for the Christian who is really in tune with God. See the promises of a a great fit body, a perfect new body, they dragged into the present. But of course if you and I believe that, then we are only one struggle away from giving up the Christian life. One of the uh, saddest situations that I've uh, known about and been involved in in the last few years uh, happened uh, in London with some newlyweds who uh, uh, shortly after they were married the husband was diagnosed with terminal cancer. That was desperate enough. But the situation got worse as a group of Christians uh, gathered around these people and began to tell them that uh, God had told them that that he would be healed. If only he had faith he would be healed. And so they called on this couple to have faith and to keep praying and not to doubt. And as others of us got involved with this couple and tried to bring some measure of reality into the situation, to prepare them, to help them to prepare for the inevitable. We, of course, were the bad guys. We were those who were doubting faith, causing them to doubt, causing him to die. So we were marginalised and they kept believing, except he died. And if that wasn't sad enough, and it was, the wife then lost her faith in Jesus Christ. Because, of course, he doesn't keep his promises, does he? Because people had told them that he, would be, that he would be healed. They were dragging the promises that were for the future into the present. If you believe that, if you live that way, then you're only one struggle away from giving up the Christian life. Well, by contrast, Paul knows troubles in the extreme. We're finally getting to the passage Last week we saw it, didn't we? Look back again to verses 8 and 9 that we saw last week. Paul knew what it was to be hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted and punched or, or struck down, as it says in the text. Yet for the faithful Christian, there are all sorts of troubles in this life before we will eventually enjoy all the promises of God. Perfect bodies and a struggle-free existence are promises for the future, for eternity, And it's because Paul had that so clear that he was not tempted to give up serving Christ when it got tough. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 16, where we begin this morning. Therefore, we do not lose heart. To lose heart, to to weaken, to grow tired of, to, to lose our keenness and to become apathetic towards Jesus. Some here may well be feeling just that. Some of you may have have wondered why it was even worth uh, turning up at church this morning. You're just feeling the Christian life is a struggle. Maybe it's just because life in itself is a struggle. Now if that is you, here is the perfect antidote. As Paul would tell us, how to persevere in Christian service. And he says the way we persevere in Christian service is to have a right perspective. He says it is to look to the future, to fix our eyes on the future, rather than trying to drag the promises of the future into the present. 
We've got to have a right perspective then. Firstly, if you're taking notes, a right perspective in valuing the inward over and above the outward. Look at verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Outwardly we're wasting away. Now look, we're all experiencing that agony to a greater or lesser extent. And whether we're Christian or not, just look in the mirror in the morning. Sooner or later you'll soon begin to realise that gravity wins. Or as a former colleague of mine used to say, we all have a furniture problem eventually with our chest in our drawers. It's the, um, it's the, the stuff of the midlife crisis. Guys, it's uh, when we realise that we just can't do what we used to do. It first hit me on the football field and it resulted in me uh, hanging up my football boots forever. Not that that was any great loss to the sporting arena, but still, it was a big moment for me as I ran onto the pitch from the changing room, kicked the ball around in a pre-match warm-up, and found that when the referee blew his whistle to start the match, I was already exhausted. Well, then was it was time to stop. Outwardly, we're wasting away. That is the frightening reality of middle age. But as one wag said, the most frightening thing about middle age is the knowledge that one day you'll grow out of it. Well, that is the reality of verse 16. Outwardly, we're wasting away. We're all experiencing it, and it doesn't matter how much we spend trying to slow it down. It keeps going on. We can spend time in the gym. We can spend money on cosmetic surgery. A little tuck there, a spot of liposuction, a Botox there. You've ever been tempted to do that, Mike? No, I don't know why I'm looking at you, brother. No matter how much we spend, verse 16, outwardly we are wasting away. But wonderfully, the Christian can say, verse 16, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. See, for the Christian, old age is not all about decaying and dying and decomposing. No, verse 16, we are being renewed. It's about renewing and reviving and restoring. So Christian, it's what goes on on the inside that really matters. So we should value the inward over the outward. And that will mean putting more effort into the quiet time than in the gym. Well, maybe you're not going to the gym very much, but you get the point. Of course, our culture has no grasp on that. Just look at the plethora of programmes on television about the outside. You can hardly turn on the television without uh, turning on another makeover programme. And there's these extreme makeover programmes where a very ordinary member of the general public is given beauty treatments and personal therapy and the most extensive cosmetic surgery to give them the body they always wanted. It's total agony for them to get it, but they seem to be happy all the same. And you see, cosmetic surgery is just that, it's cosmetic. No matter how much we do to our bodies, it is just maintenance. Death will inevitably unravel all the surgeon's hard work in the end. Now Christian, there is nothing wrong with wanting to look good. But we should value the inward over the outward. And if you say to me, yes, yes, I know all that, you're you're not telling me anything I don't know, here's the test. I wonder if your prayer life reflects that. What do you pray more about? Health issues? And it's fine to pray about them, but what do you pray more about? Health issues or your relationship with the Lord and your obedience to Jesus? Are you praying more about becoming more godly or about the aches and the pains? 
Well, that we persevere in Christian service when we value the inward over and above the outward. Secondly, we persevere in Christian service when we value the future over and above the present. Look at verse 17. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Our society loves the present, lives for the present. We live in a world of instant gratification. We want everything now. But sadly, I meet Christians who are no different. Christians who value the present more than the future. Christians who never give the impression that the eternal glory of verse 17 is more important than what they have now. And so, those Christians see nothing of seeing the struggles of this life as light and momentary. But you see, if we live for the present, eventually it will catch up with us. If we don't value eternity over the present, we will lose heart in serving Christ because authentically following Jesus, as we saw last week, will make this life hard. And I will never stand up for Christ or make sacrifices for Jesus if I value the present more than the future. I will go soft in the Christian life when it means losing out on things in this life, won't I? If this is what I really value. In my first four years at All Souls in London, I was, I was heading up the workplace ministry, helping people consider what it meant to live for Christ in their workplace. And this was one of the biggest issues that I hit again and again and again. Time and again, Christians had to ask themselves, do I value my job more than I value Jesus? Will I do the right thing as a Christian, even if it affects my career and even if it costs me my job, which of course funds everything that I have now? I had to ask the question, what do I value? Well, for Paul it was very clear. He so valued the future that he saw any struggles in this life as, verse 17, light and momentary. Now, weightless, literally fluff. That's how Paul saw his struggles. Now, now, now that is not to say that persecution and pain and being perplexed doesn't matter. Of course those things matter. Many here are going through very real and painful struggles. We don't want to uh, diminish those. We we, we want to support you in them. We're not to be like stoical Englishmen with a stiff upper lip pretending that pain doesn't hurt. We're, We're certainly not to be like the cults, the Christian scientists who deny that pain is actually pain. We must be real. Struggles are hard. Paul has already said that in verses 8 and 9. Following Christ will be costly, but from an eternal perspective, the pains and problems of this life are like fluff. With uh, with three young children in our household, uh, trips to the playground are a regular feature of the Williams household. And on the whole, it's great fun. Well, it is these days anyway. But when the children were a little younger, even though they're not very old now, when they were a little younger, every trip to the playground resulted in tears. Everyone, with one or other of them falling over and hurting themselves. I have lost count of the amount of grazed knees that Caroline and I have sorted out in the playground. Now, I don't know what it is about our children, but whenever they fall over in the playground, they seem to make more noise than any other children. They cry more tears, scream much louder and demand more attention. They're just like their father. But despite being able to deafen everyone in the playground, within 15 minutes of grazing their knee, they're running around again as if nothing ever happened. 
you notice that parents and grandparents is amazing isn't it that says Paul is how it will be in eternity we will look back to our troubles and consider them nothing more than a grazed knee in the playground they are light and momentary they are fluff and again this is uh, not to undermine the very real struggles that I know some of you are going through but in comparison with the vast millennia of eternity that awaits us these troubles are like the fleeting shadows cast by passing clouds on a sunny day well we'll persevere in the Christian life if we have a right perspective then valuing the inward over the outward valuing eternity over the present and thirdly valuing the invisible over the visible verse 18 so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal (laughs) of course the world fixes their eyes on what is seen it's so much easier to fix our eyes on the visible the Corinthians valued the visible and again far too many Christians today are enamoured by the things that we see We love our homes and our bank balances and our cars and our achievements. In the church we value most the buildings and the structures. We love the physical, the present, the visible, just like society around us. But, verse 18, what is seen is temporary. It's what is unseen, what is to come that lasts forever. And it is that that Paul wants us to be sure of as we head into chapter 5. Paul wants us to be sure about what is unseen. He wants us to be informed about what is yet to come and therefore confident about eternity. See, confidence is where chapter 5 is heading. Look at chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident. Look at verse 8. We are confident, I say. Christian, are you confident about what is unseen? Are you confident about life beyond the grave? Are you confident about the eternal? If you are sure about eternal things, then you will be happy to do chapter 4, verse 18, fix your eyes on what is unseen. If you're not confident about those things, you will hang on to this life. You will hang on to the seen, to the temporary. But you see, what is unseen is far more substantial than what is seen. That's what Paul wants to show us. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Now don't misunderstand this. When Paul talks about this eternal house, Paul is not describing heaven as an eternal house. Here, he is describing our resurrection bodies as a building from God, as an eternal house. See, he says in verse 1, the bodies we now have are like tents. The bodies we'll have in eternity, in comparison, will be solid buildings. See, in these first verses in this chapter, Paul wants us to know that Christians believe in a bodily resurrection. Christian, get rid of all ideas of of Christians floating around on clouds, plucking harps, wearing ethereal negligees. You will look nothing like this. The resurrection body is far more tangible than that. Actually, Paul points out that, that it's far more tangible than this body, than this body that we now have. Compared to the resurrection body that we will receive, this body is like a tent. 
And honestly, who wants to live in a tent if you can live in a house? Maybe it's something to do with my age again, but I I can find absolutely nothing appealing about camping. It's uncomfortable in bed, noisy in the wind, cold in the winter, too hot in the summer, and with no shower, smelly all year round. Camping is not my idea of fun. I love my home comforts. Paul says, living now in this body is like camping compared to what is to come. So when this body, to which I've become so attached for the last 43 years, finally gives up the ghost, as we say, when, like a tent, it is dismantled and packed away in a little box, and when death, like an unsympathetic landlord, tells me that I have to find new accommodation, the assurance here is that such an eviction order will not leave me homeless. No, says Paul, quite the opposite. For the Christian, in death, we move up the property ladder. That's what he's saying in verse 1. From living in a tent to living in an eternal house. And it's a house that is located in a much classier neighbourhood. Classier even than forward, can you believe it? Look at verse 1, just to prove it is classier than, than forward. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven. That's a classy neighbourhood. Well, from verse 1, in verses 2 and 4, Paul changes the picture from dwellings to clothing, from property to the wardrobe. But his point is is the same. Look at verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we'll not be found naked. You see, in this body, we feel naked, even when we've got clothes on. That is, we feel vulnerable, because we are. This flimsy tent can be gone in a moment. One one gust of wind and it's gone. Well, we know the pain of that in this this church family at the moment, in these past weeks, with, with several people having been bereaved. Our bodies are so flimsy. And in this body, we are so vulnerable. We feel naked, but we have a new resurrection body to look forward to, where we will be fully clothed. That is, we won't feel vulnerable anymore. See, Christian, in in eternity, in the new creation, you will have a new body, just as Jesus rose with a resurrection body that we could see and touch, a body that ate and consumed fish. There's nothing insubstantial about the resurrection body. In fact, our resurrection bodies will be far more substantial than the bodies we have now. Look at verse 4. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened because we don't wish to be unclothed, but we wish to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And that, verse 5, is what we've been made for. We've been made to live in a body that is not mortal, but that lives forever. And that's the Christian's confidence. But if you and I don't have that confidence, then we will try to build heaven here. We certainly won't fix our eyes, as it says in chapter 4, verse 18, on what is unseen. You see, I think verse 5 of chapter 5 is a fascinating explanation behind the way we live in our society today. Look again at that phrase at the beginning of verse 5. It is God who's made us for this. That is for our, not a body that is mortal, verse 4, 
but for a, a life that goes on beyond the grave. Now deep down we all know that. Whether we're Christian or not, deep down we know we were not made to die. That is why death never feels right. My, my grandmother was, was 97 when she died some years ago. And even though she had lived such a long life, her death was still terribly painful for us. Oh, we couldn't just explain it away. Ah, oh, well, she had a good innings. Well, she did have a good innings. But it still didn't feel right when she died. No, verse 5, God has made us for life. And whether we can express it like that or, or, or not, everyone knows that deep down because uh, to use the, uh, the verse from Ecclesiastes, God has said eternity in the hearts of men. We've got eternity in us. And so when men and women have no grasp of this Christian confidence that we're looking at today... They will try to do anything to avoid death, paying vast amounts of money to Booper to keep their body intact. And because we know we ought to have a permanent dwelling rather than a flimsy tent, people become obsessed with property today. So on television, again, there is a plethora of property shows. A house in the sun, house doctor, interior decoration shows, garden shows, all about making our house the most amazing place we can make it. It's compensation for the eternal house that we will never have if we don't have this confidence. And because we feel unclothed in this body, our culture has become obsessed with fashion. It's such big business on the high street and again on the television we have a glut of, of clothes programmes. I mean, you can barely turn on the television without seeing a clothes programme. Trini and Susanna have become household names. My, my wife loves Trini and Susanna. I think they're all right as well. But you see what people are doing. They know that they feel unclothed. They want to clothe themselves. We've been made for life. We've been made to be clothed in a permanent solid body that never dies. So end of verse 4, we look forward to the day when what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. And Christian, you have not only been made for that, but you are to be confident of it. Verse 5, now it is God who's made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Isn't that the most amazing verse? Isn't that the most astonishing promise? The Father has given the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Uh, we, we bought a new car, well, not new to us, not a brand new car at the end of last year. Uh, we bought it over the internet. I can't believe that I was spending probably one of the largest sums of money I will ever spend over the internet. Without ever seeing the car, I put a deposit on it for £200. And I thought, well, this is scary. Because you know as well as I do how deposits work. You lose the deposit if you don't complete the transaction. So if when I actually went to see the car, I didn't want it, my £200 would be gone. Lost. Amazingly, Paul tells us here that the Father has given us a deposit of such value, we can hardly believe it. He's given us the Holy Spirit as the promise that he will complete the transaction. And therefore, verse 6, we are always confident. God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is lost, then the living God is lost. So this deposit is cast iron guarantee. It is beyond impossible for the Father to fail to keep his resurrection promise to us. See the point? 
And so Paul can write in verse 6, therefore we're always confident and know that as long as we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. And it's that phrase in verse 7 which is the key phrase. We live by faith, not by sight. That's the big point. Faith, not not whipping up a belief in something that is vague, but trusting something that is certain, but something that we can't see and haven't yet received. And that's how we keep going in Christian service. Having confidence in these things will stop us from losing hearts. That's why Paul gives us this very full understanding of the resurrection body. We will keep going in Christian service not by trying to drag promises that are for the future into the present but, chapter 4, verse 18, by fixing our eyes on what is in the future, what is unseen. And this is how we do it. He's told us what is unseen so we can fix our eyes on it now. And when we have that sort of confidence in the resurrection... Well then Paul writes verse 9 So we make it our goal to please him whether at home in the body or away from it for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We know we're going to meet Jesus one day and we know he's given us all this and so we're pleased to, to we, we live to please him. That is Paul's heartbeat. Longing to be with the Lord so not giving up now and in the present living for him wholeheartedly, unreservedly because he knows there's so much more to come. Let's pray together. Though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. And therefore we do not lose heart. Our loving Heavenly Father, please encourage us. Please encourage those who came today feeling discouraged, who were perhaps on the edge of giving up the Christian life, Encourage us all to be those who keep wanting to please Jesus, knowing that our eternal dwelling is so much better than what we have now. And we pray too for any here uh, who know nothing of this, who have no understanding of eternity. Please help them to grasp these truths, that they may know they can live for the future and not for the present, which is one day going to be gone anyway. Give us all confidence, confidence in what is to come, and may it result in us living wholeheartedly for Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.